0: I'm Alejandra Melian. Welcome to Talking Culture. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Ganyangahaga on the land known as Chiyotiage. We recognize the Ganyangahaga as the rightful stewards of this land. Today I would also like to acknowledge the structural racism that I personally, Talking Culture as a podcast, and the Anthropology Department at McGill are all a part of. The Quebec Premier Francois Legault recently stated that he supports the anti-police brutality and Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, and then added that there is no institutionalized racism in Quebec. This claim is laughable for a number of reasons. Institutionalized racism against BIPOC individuals is everywhere, and this is not the moment to go into it all, but let me briefly just mention the Quebec government's recent immigration policies, self-proclaimed nationalism, and the continued structural barriers to First Nations, Inuit, and Metis people throughout Quebec and Canada. Further, although Canada loves to shake its head at the racism in the United States, a deep-rooted anti-Black racism exists here too. I encourage all of you to read Policing Black Lives by Robin Maynard for a proper history of the Canadian context. Talking Culture stands in solidarity with protesters everywhere fighting for black lives. We also continue our conversations about COVID-19. In today's interview, I talk with Dr. Todd Myers. Our conversation ranges from war metaphors in relation to COVID, to the intimacy of care in clinics and hospitals. During our conversation, he also mentions Christos Lentiras's work about pandemic imaginaries in film, And Dr. Myers points out how we expect COVID to be over in the space of an hour and a half. Reflecting on this has helped me think about continuing this conversation in the midst of the current protests. It is difficult to hold both things at once. This isn't the police brutality movie, this is the pandemic movie. But the reality of reality is that these issues, these injustices are all happening at once and we do not get to pick which ones we want to deal with. I also realize that they are connected. The pandemic has hit minority communities the hardest due to structural failures and biases. The intersection of racial injustice and COVID is an important one to explore, and I will find an appropriate way to tackle this in episodes to come. In the meantime, my conversation with Dr. Myers offers space to think about the pandemic on multiple levels that continue to be relevant. Todd Myers is a medical anthropologist whose work moves between ethnography, historical studies of medicine, and visual studies. His most recent book, written with Stefanos Geroulanos, is The Human Body in the Age of Catastrophe Brittleness, Integration, Science, and the Great War. His recent work focuses on the daily experience of chronic illness. He is currently Associate Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Center for Society, Health, and Medicine at New York University, Shanghai. Dr. Myers will be joining the Department of Social Studies of Medicine at McGill as the Marjorie Bronfman Chair in Social Studies of Medicine this coming fall. Here's my conversation with Dr. Myers. I wanted to actually open the conversation with something that we had talked a little bit about in in our opening. What is difficult about having this conversation at this time for you? Do you think that we can even reflect and think properly about this while we're still in the middle of it?
1: Well, I mean that's it's, well first of all, it's a nice way to <laughs> It's a very nice way to open a conversation which is is there a way to properly have a conversation? I mean I mean that's but that's the you've really you've touched on I think what the what the concern for a lot of, You know, and and I, I mean, I have to begin by sort of narrowing the we down. I mean, for me, it's medical anthropologists or cultural, sociocultural anthropologists, historians of science, historians of medicine, people who think critically about public health. I mean, the people that I've been paying attention to, the people that I've been reading, I think I can see, you know, a thread that runs through most of the commentaries, which is I mean, obviously, urgency, concern, a great deal of frustration. I mean, how do you have this conversation without frustration? Frustration at the ways in which for social scientists, you know, who have been looking specifically at pandemic response and have been looking at preparedness from all kinds of different angles for those public health people who are working in interesting and critical and important ways. I mean, I can only imagine the frustration of, a kind of I don't know, I don't know if erasure is the right word, but uh, a kind of willful um, ignoring of a great deal of scholarship that's not obscure, but actually, you know, is is close to the center of uh, conversations about policy and certainly conversations about how we how we frame health and illness. So I, I guess I'm just, I mean, I, I think the proper way to enter the conversation has to acknowledge frustration, irritation, but also a kind of, there's an exhaustion in all of this as well, not just the exhaustion of the topic, which, you know, I I, I have to pause about every third day um, and take a deep breath because, you know, every morning when I wake up, including source, you know, when I look at sites and, and sources that I'm, you know, that I go to every day, Somatosphere being one of them, you know, I'm an associate editor on Somatosphere, they've been running long commentaries um, serial like serial commentaries on the pandemic for a long time now. Um, looking at just news, you know, kind of standard news sources. I mean, after a while, you sort of get you get saturated, you get frustrated looking at those things. So I have to take a breath about every third day. But I think there is a kind of there's also a need not to not to run out of steam when it comes to thinking about these things. So, so there's the acknowledgement of frustration there's all the acknowledgement of a kind of fatigue that builds there's the fatigue of you know having to do for some of us having to do homeschooling and all kinds of other things for you know eight to ten hours a day and then also think in ways that are very uncomfortable and always changing about what's happening how it's affecting our lives the lives of people we work with lives of people we have no contact with other than the fact that we live on this planet together, uh, the lives of our students and colleagues at universities. And so, I mean, there's there's just a sort of layer upon layer of how to enter, like, what's the comportment of a conversation? And I think they have to take in, I guess there are these, you could almost call them the productive negative factors. I mean, you have to acknowledge the, the uncertainty and worry and anger and frustration and exhaustion, or else the conversation feels very, it feels trite. It feels, you know, it feels unreal. So maybe that's the way we have to approach these things, acknowledging a kind of core, a kind of core humanness uh, to the way in which we are thinking and discussing these things, which acknowledge um, some pretty, you know, pretty rough stuff.
0: And when you say that, that that acknowledging the productive negative parts it's productive because it adds a more real and more human element to it maybe i mean
1: of course i mean any time that we i mean it's not i i think it's more less about the texture of of the conversation and more about you know what is the what is the place in which this conversation is coming from i mean what's the you know it's actually taking into account in a very simple way like, what is my point of view? And what are the things that surround me in this point of view? And if that's, you know, if that's a kind of, if that's a kind of discomfort, or if it's a, a sense of uh, worry, I think that also has to be part of this. So that's why in, in a sense, it's productive in the sense that it, it acknowledges the ways in which we have to approach these questions. Not not timidly, by any stretch of the imagination, and certainly not in a kind of wounded way, but I think in a way that acknowledges that we're we're caught up in them to to whatever degree. And that they are, you know, that, that especially with this outbreak, that they are these concerns come in different forms and it's very, very, very difficult to compartmentalize, um, for as much as we want for, you know, professional expedience or you know, intellectual clarity. I think that sometimes might not be the right approach in a like a conversation like this, um, which I think does require some acknowledgement of how difficult it is to even even begin the conversation.
0: Yeah, it's like a it's just a much more personal or intimate type of positionality, right? Well, yeah,
1: and and I think it's also about kind of the care for ideas. I mean, you know, I mean, this is the. I think one of the concerns that, you know, at least I have, I can't speak for anybody else. I mean, one of the concerns that I have is that when I talk or write or think or give feedback on ways in which ways in which we can sort of talk and, and think and write about this moment, I mean, I think there's just this wanting to avoid a cheapness of, you know, just going for like the, you know, the, the cheap read of what's happening and not trying to take into account more of these complex elements, and not and not just the interpersonal ones, but the, the complexity where, you know, suddenly so much is called into question about daily life, about um, care relationships, about the way in which we relate to one another, and what's possible in a future of relating to one another, about concerns that have been put on hold because of this moment, you know, that other moments are still happening. I think all of those things sort of, they come to bear on how we approach, you know, our our mode of thinking here.
0: Hmm. And what are you most worried about in terms of how this moment is affecting either anthropology departments or the discipline more generally?
1: Well, I mean, that's, I mean, there's a lot of, that's a, it's a great question and it's a question that we should all be asking ourselves. I mean, certainly the, I don't think that the precarity of students, their, their lives and, The job market and what what we think about as gainful employment and not gainful employment, what we think about hopes and dreams and ambitions, what we think about scholarly production. I mean, there's always been, I I don't think that this is the first time vulnerabilities or precarity, people in those positions have, you know, been discussed. I think they amplify and intensify those discussions. And so I think, you know, just the ways in which, I mean, I, I am only speaking for my, again, only for myself and sort of the things that I'm struggling with right now with my university and seeing what's happening, you know, just, you know, making sure that students their livelihoods are, you know, not completely turned inside out. And what we think about is like a reasonable sacrifice, which sacrifice comes into so many of these discussions in ways that are not productive. We should, I, maybe we could put a pin on that, you know, and come back to it. But, you know, there's so much about, you know, everyone tightening belts and sacrificing. And I think it's a chance for us to really reevaluate what, what our expectations of graduate learning about what the, you know, what a university is, perhaps a university should be more than just a tax shelter, you know? And again, I'm talking about, I'm, this is very much through the lens of, of the United States right now, where I am currently. But, you know, maybe, maybe universities have more of an obligation to the people who, attend those universities and work there and teach there. And then I think about, you know, things that may have not come into the purview of someone like me, a faculty member, without this moment. And I think about students who I, you know, I teach it, I'm currently teaching at New York University in Shanghai. And we closed early um, because of the outbreak in China. And students were sent home whether it was, you know, back to wherever they were from in China or back to the states or back to a lot of different places. I mean, it's a really international student body. And you know, one of the concerns was, you know, what what's the domestic situation? What does home returning home mean? You know, it doesn't mean the same thing in every case. And concerns about, you know, difficult home situations. I mean, for some students, you know, going off to college as an undergraduate was an escape from a very Difficult home environment, and now you know you're sort of thrust back in that environment with no clear idea of, of what's going to happen in the next, you know, semester or the next year. Managing that that world while simultaneously trying to maintain your studies. I mean, so it's just this this the shape of precarity. I think has really has really changed in some ways, but also I think it just shines a much brighter light on problems that have existed and seem to always get kind of pushed to the back burner of you know intervention so there's a lot I mean there's just there's and that's only I mean that's only a partial answer to your question but that's what I've been thinking about recently and and worrying about
0: and I mean I guess this is an impossible question to answer also but do you think that after this moment universities will try to mend some of those gaps or do you think that the trend is going to be to try to be back, go back to the way that things were before
1: I have no idea I've I, honestly I've no idea I mean my of course my my you know the pessimistic side of my thinking is you know this is a an opportunity to Cut the fat, and you know, shrink departments, and you know, do all of the things that you know many of us fear that universities will do when given the opportunity. But um, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, at the same time, my university right now is doing a tremendous job, at, you know, of supporting students and, and are really trying to think of new ways to support students, and so I, I see efforts happening. I see efforts, you know, that are that are genuine, but I don't know what the, I don't know what, what things will return to and what the, and, and what it's going to look like. I, I mean, I'm crossing my fingers that some of these things, I, I guess I'm crossing my fingers that some of these conversations don't go away when some version of, you know, normalcy returns and that, that there's, you know, the distance of time between this moment and whatever the next one is. I hope that I hope these, these, these issues remain important, because they are, obviously.
0: Who do you think needs to carry these conversations forward? Where do these conversations need to be be happening?
1: I, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it, that's also the important question. I mean, this is obviously people who have power in universities. I mean, that's one place to recognize that they have power and security. I mean, much of this is shouldered by students, you know, and that's, the reality is most of, most of the heavy lifting is done by people who are are doing it with the least amount of security, and are somehow meant to accept that the future is bleaker than um, the one that they you know that was offered to them when they started this process of being a graduate student or undergraduate. Yeah, I mean there's, and and I don't think it's just you know I don't think it's just a few well-intended faculty who make all of this radical change. I mean, I think that it is a much broader, there's a need for a much broader um, effort beyond just, uh, like I say, some well-intended faculty. Who, who's part of that effort? It's a, it's a good question. You know, the one thing that really worries me the most is kind of the state of the university. Not, just be, not that I think universities are going to disappear, but really so many of these issues, you know, cut across these institutions and with people that I have the most contact with you know professionally, I mean it's my job, um and I worry about them probably the most, and it's much easier to establish some kind of i don't know to talk about this with greater distance between like the locus of concern and yourself, but your first two questions are precisely how do we talk about this and what about the university yeah you you, you went right for the center of things very very nice <laughs> i I mean this I know that these these podcasts are kind of a set of interviews and but I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm very interested in your perspective on this as well, and I think that's also kind of part of the. I mean, I think that's part of this this the problem, um, as well, which is, it, which direction are we hearing concern, and you know, where is concern coming from, and I think that that question extends to the, I think the larger issue around the outbreak, because it's, you know, it's a real question of where, where exactly, you know, who, who gets, who's in a position to shape concern? And what exactly are those terms of concern? So I, I think you're you're, of course, you're thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. But I also think it presents a very fundamental problem about the nature of concern itself as the concern itself is, I mean, I, I think you might agree, it's like, it's not neutral. And whoever is in a position to shape that concern really, from the outset, gets to shape how a conversation about remedying problems, about funneling resources, et cetera, et cetera. It, it really, I mean, it's the it's the initiator. And so, so, so I think those the idea of of shaping concern becomes. I mean, this is I think this is one of the things that is often frustrating for social scientists, which is here we've written you know six or eight books on this topic, but Yet are those concerns the ones that are, you know, being kind of articulated in the right places? Um, And I think that's a that's a difficult question.
0: Yeah I think the right places is key. Um, the graduate students in in our in my department wrote a letter to the department with a list of our concerns and things that we were thinking about and worried about and they did their best to respond to it but it was a little bit scary how many of the answers were well we have no idea and it felt a little bit like our concerns were being just kind of lost in the ether <laughs> and like who do we present these questions to then? I, I, I'm just a little bit worried that the questions being asked a certain level of the still prevalent academic hierarchy just kind of get will get lost.
1: I mean, you also raise another. I mean, you raise this other sort of issue about uncertainty and unknowing, which is, you know, when when I sit down and write, when I think about my own work, I mean, I think about questions of uncertainty and I think about worries and I think about what can I say, what can't I say, what I what, what I will I not be able to ever say. And I think these are—I mean—these are the kind of base epistemological questions that we are faced constantly in our own work, and they're ones that we should attend to. And I think often, if you go to an anthropology conference and you hear the kinds of critiques that come out of people's mouths in the audience, I mean, often those critiques are about overstepping. They're about kind of what the—you know—what the nature of evidence is and how you can be certain that something is as it is in the world. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the basis of the the human sciences. I mean, we should be asking those questions. But I think when we find ourselves in these moments where, in a way, we've been trained our whole lives, in you know, our whole you know intellectual careers, to think straight about these issues, and here, thinking straight is a near impossibility. And you know, kind of going back to our our first the first topic that we talked about, I think, that idea of that kind of recognizing your point of view, I think is the first step in all of this. And if that point of view also includes, you know, uncertainty and unknowing, it's kind of like, well, we need to, we, that's not, that's the starting point. That's not the, that's not the ending point to the discussion. And it's, you know, and it's also not the flavor that you give to a discussion, even though you're speaking in certain and, you know, unworried terms you know it's like it has to be it has to be part of the 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 substance of of the way in which we approach how how we understand how this in this case this pandemic is is impacting individuals and it might not come through in ways that i think are are expected or have already been thought about before or i mean certainly i mean one of the things that i've been thinking about a lot is well first of all how these things come to bear on sort of domestic, in the sort of domestic sphere, in the home. Um, what does care look like? What does intimate life look like in the home? You know, it, it connects to some research concerns that I have. I mean, I'm interested, i been working, starting to work on uh, issues of, of child sexual abuse. And so um, that's that's been on my mind. And, you know, just domestic abuse in general, that somehow, you know, this this home space sheltering in place is not the may not be the safest place to shelter. But I've also been thinking about it in terms of just something as basic as, you know, the ways in which, you know, social and economic insecurity come to bear on other parts of people's lives and their health. And then suddenly there's a pandemic and there's all of this surprise that communities that are already in harm's way are in harm's way, you know? And it's as though though there was a kind of unexpected... That the pandemic is an exception to other concerns about human health. That somehow, you know, the scarcity of resources in another domain don't have anything to do with this thing that we, you know, are, you know, call COVID. And I think that's also been kind of something that how those, how those different worlds, how those ideas about different worlds of this pandemic versus health inequalities um, is conceptualized has been something I've been thinking about, you know. And, and in some ways, I mean, it fits the kind of idea of exceptionalism that we've seen. You know, we should know the answers to all of these things. You know, isn't there a public health task force? Didn't I see a movie about this? Christos, Christos Linteris, who's at St Andrews in anthropology, just wrote a beautiful book which came out right before the the pandemic about kind of pandemic imaginaries in film. And, you know, those films end well, in general, even though they have moments of crises. And so I think we're all expecting things to wrap up, you know, in 90 minutes and roll the credits. And so, you know, there's all these different ways in which, you know, uncertainty is coming through now. And we, you know, we have a hard time dealing with it. So anyways, I took I, I took your your comment about uncertainty and worry and ran with it. But but I think that I think you're touching on one of the most important problems, you know, whether it's at the departmental level or if it's the level of, you know, the way in which a, you know, a country responds to a pandemic. I mean, managing uncertainty, I think, is the, is the key.
0: What are some of the current suspended activities that you would like to see not come back?
1: So I so you sent these questions to me and I had read them ca- more casually when they came out in print, you know, several weeks ago. And so I've been thinking about this is the one, you know, he has a whole series of questions, but I got stuck on this one. My first reaction was, you know, is this a kind of pet peeve question? You know, is this a question about utopianism? Is there I mean, is this a trick question? I mean, yes, of course, like, you know, our reliance on capital and patterns of consumption, I I would love for those not to come back in the same way. But I, and I, but I don't think it is a pet peeve question, and I don't think that it is about utopianism, and I don't think that it's about um, just a, a kind of canned response about capitalism. Though, though I do think patterns of consumption and capital are part of the answer, at least my answer to this question. I think I think it's a very difficult question to answer, just because on one hand, so many. If we think about this institutionally, things are interlinked. I mean, it's a. I mean, this is what we've seen over the last several months is that institutions are linked and not just institutions within a country, but globally. And, you know, I I think if I was, if I had one, one activity that I would love to see suspended, it would be the sense of exceptionalism. It's less an institution, more of an attitude. What strike really strikes me is that, you know, when I was in Shanghai in the months leading up to, Covid, you know, the coronavirus getting into the the globe, the global press. Um, you know, we were reading reports in December, and then you know, I left and went back to the states. And even when you know, I was sitting with my partner and talking about, you know, should we go back to Shanghai? Should we try? What's happening at the towards the end of July? There was so much, you know, gnashing of teeth and worry about what it would mean to go back. You know, it, it seemed it seemed completely off the radar of everyone I was talking to, you know, here in the States, as though, you know, somehow this was not going to reach the States. And then, you know, and then when cases in Italy started showing up in other places, there was still this idea of exceptionalism. So this very old idea about connectivity and globalization, somehow still, there, there are these still the sense of being exceptional. So that's one, I guess that's one axis to this. And then there's another axis, which is, you know, the exceptionalism that the things that we want in daily life should be available to us all the time, even though, you know, the worlds in which we have created for ourselves rely on scarcity. And that's another form of, I guess you could call it exceptionalism. That's, you know, those are the sort of hierarchies of power relationships and and need, and, you know, just this sort of dependence on despair that, that boy, it sure would be nice if, if this was a moment of recalibration. I, you know, I'm struck by so many different things. I mean, my first, you know, my first reaction to this question was big box stores. You know, I was like, oh God, you know, maybe this will destroy, you know, the big box stores in North America. And, the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, I'm talking about Target and Walmart and Costco and all of these places. And I th- of course, you know, I was being, you know, facetious, you know, because this was also, you know, when you sent the questions is also the moments in which many places having, you know, lockdown orders slash, you know, uh, stay at home orders, you know, people were starting to get antsy and, you you know, there were more and more incidents that were being reported, people breaking, you know, breaking the rules and going to these stores. And so of course I'm thinking, oh boy, it would sure be nice to get rid of these horrible, you know, and, and it's my own, my own personal, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this through my own, my own preferences, my own lens, like my own sensibilities. And then, you know, I think what it shows though is there's a, I mean, there is an incredible draw to these places it's it's really too easy to dismiss the folks who are you know causing causing trouble and getting on YouTube and having you know viral videos go around of them taking their mask off at Costco and what have you. I was struck by how power. I mean, that's one thing to sort of look at the look at those folks and say these are lost causes. You know, they don't understand the the danger, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I don't think that that's actually the um the right Perspective. I mean, I'm struck by how powerful these places are as a draw. I mean, I'm struck by um, it's really too easy to dismiss people who are going and getting haircuts and doing various activities, which are also being um, characterized as you know as as dangerous and also like that somehow you're like you know breaking this kind of this pact, the social pact that we've all somehow. Been, um, you know, suckered into agreeing to because you know we're meant to fend for ourselves, um, more or less. Going to those places feeds something, and you know, and it's it's, and you know, they're powerful because something's been taken away, and they fulfill a need. And I think there's actually a lot of work that needs to be done, um, to think about like this power of this consumption on this level, what that means. So I, I guess I'm. Thinking about Latour's question, I guess what I would really like to see sus- some things that have been suspended not coming back would be maybe maybe less of a disappearance and maybe a reconsideration. Like, you know, what does need mean? What does essential mean? What does boredom mean? What does closeness mean? I mean, what does risk mean? I mean, what does future mean? And it's one thing to sit around a seminar table and discuss these things. It's another thing to say, well, what do those things actually mean to people who are, you know, breaking stay-at-home orders to go to big box stores or to get their hair cut? Because we can't dismiss that, whatever it is that's, that's, that's driving that, that need. And then, of course, I, you know, instantly, I think also because of just reading other things by uh, Latour recently, I was also thinking how this figures into a discussion about the climate crisis, you know. And so when I'm thinking about, you know, these videos of people, you know, with no mask on getting angry because they're not able to get into Costco, um, I'm also thinking, well, this is, you know, it would be one thing to completely dismiss these people as lost causes, but it's another thing to say, well, wait a second. I mean, are these not also people who are going to have to participate in a world if there's going to be you know effective ways of, of reversing or dealing with climate change. It's a reevaluation of closeness, not just about can I hug somebody or can I go and see friends and family and have a dinner party? I think it's also about closeness, reevaluating closeness to one another, like how we think about people who we may or may not have ever had contact with and how their decisions and needs, the things that drive them, um, the things that they hold important enough to put themselves in harm's way. And I'm not convinced that they're, you know, so naive about, in general, about, you know, risk or these other things. But, you know, what's our closeness to other people who don't think like us or don't look like us? I mean, this is a a moment of recalibration, but it's also a moment of taking a hard look about our own sense of exceptionalism and wondering like what role it plays in creating a very divided world. And again, I'm looking at this through the through the lens of someone who's in North America right now. But you know, I think that's those are some of the things that I would really like to see not come back. And I don't know if that's the... I mean, because then when I read all of the other things that Latour asks us about, you know, sort of what's why are these things superfluous, dangerous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, all of those things are obvious in my answer, which is. I I think if we go back to the same ways of thinking about one another, the things that will, that are still on the horizon as worries. I mean, in certain the climate crisis is, you know, it has not, just because it's been pushed to page six or seven in the newspaper does not mean that it should not be, you know, a a co-headline with, you know, the pandemic. We were talking before you started recording about the, some of the metaphors related to COVID, the war metaphor, being one of them, but also there's this kind of um, there's there's always this language of the wake up call. Like this is the wake up call, and I, I don't know I don't know if I if I find that language particularly useful, but I do think it's a moment to rethink some things, and you know and I and I and you know I also think people are are rethinking things. I mean they're certainly rethinking their relate. I mean one I'll answer the question from another angle. I would love to see. Um, the ways in which we approach, I guess, the our attitudes towards um, primary and secondary education to change. I mean, my God, I mean, suddenly, you know, nation upon nation are all discovering that teachers do a hell of a lot of work, or that schools don't just, you know, teach kid arithmetic, but they also like feed kids at least two meals a day. And, you know, are there, and you know, that the nurses in schools are actually helping children manage medications, or, you know, I mean, all kinds of things, or that, you know, it's the only place, you know, that school, you know, a digital divide might still exist in one form or another, depending on what your, you know, your zip code is in the United States, and how much, you know, tax money goes into your schools. But it is a place in which most children have access to the internet and have access to, you know, you know, digital media and computers and blah, blah, blah. And so I would love to see a reevaluation of that. I mean, I know, I know over the last several months, I've been reevaluating that. I've certainly been reevaluating what good teaching is. I mean, if I'm, I'm teaching my seminars over Zoom, and then I, you know, then I eavesdrop on my daughter's discussions with her teacher. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've got to step it up. So I would love to see kind of a reevaluation of like, how much, I mean, if this really is like, if this is a, a wake up call, it's a wake up call to our values all over the place. I hope some teachers are getting raises after this pandemic.
0: Yeah, and I I like reevaluation because it I feel like the term disappearance when we're thinking about things that we don't like maybe too utopian as you said, but like re actually just rethinking and working with the reality of what exists might might be more productive.
1: Yeah, I certainly think people who are working in hospital environments or uh, I mean, this is maybe the first time that people have thought about scarcity in clinic, in hospital environments. And, you know, when the discussion about masks and ventilators starts, you know, circulating, you know, there, there seemed to be this shock wave that, that went across the, the media, which was, can you believe that hospitals don't have enough for everyone? And, you know, and for those of us who've been working in clinical environments for, you know, years and years, I mean, it's like, that's the starting point of this discussion. This is like, that's, that is the given that, you know, budgets are cut, and supplies are scarce, and healthcare workers are overworked, and that there's a hidden, I mean, you want to talk about disappearance, there's a hidden army of healthcare workers within the sort of war metaphor, that, you know, are, you know, that are doing elder care, and who are just as underpaid as teachers, who are, you know, are essential workers who are taking care of, you know, the aged, and they, they largely are absent from our appreciation of what an essential worker is. So, so anyways, I just, I I just think that that reevaluation also is like kind of a moment of recognition, too, about these things that have been hidden. I mean, it's, and I mean, I mean, I won't even comment, I'm sure other people who are living in Montreal will comment about, you know, the the ways in which the care of the old became is bit such a Central part of the story about the outbreak in Montreal, but like I say that's I'm I'm only I'm only understanding that through friends and and through what I read in the media So um, I'll let other people comment on that
0: you you mentioned before the war metaphor. So I think that that's a good place to start talking about the idea of catastrophe. I've heard in many places in the media, but also in conversation, this comparison of this moment to World War II as a generation-defining catastrophe, as many people are putting it. And first, I, I'm kind of wondering what you make of that comparison of that metaphor.
1: Well, so the comparison to the Second World War, I mean, our historian friends will tell us that I I think the reason why that, 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 you know, that comparison is sort of, you know, is brought out every time something really bad happens and there's an expectation that everyone is going to have a stiff upper lip and pull together. And it's a very sort of, you know, what do we do during the blitz sort of mentality? And our historian friends will tell us that it's a much more complicated story about ways in which people came together and did not come together in a moment of crisis and I'm just talking about, you know, the U.S. and the Brits. The war metaphor in general, I mean, I find it so unsatisfactory. I mean, the compare, even the comparisons of mass death, which are, are, are shocking at times, and I think they're meant to shock, to compare COVID deaths, for instance, to number of deaths during the Vietnam conflict in my state of, of, of Michigan. That was something that was in the news quite recently and those thing, those things are shocking and they're meant to shock i don't know if they're productive in the way in which they think they're productive that is to say to heighten concern etc this idea of the invisible enemy i mean there's i mean and it's been it's been great fun to to see the way in which you know the sinophobia comes through so quickly you know, i thought it would take a little bit longer but you know you know it happened almost immediately the scapegoating the us and them mentality but those are things that are to be expected. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not surprised by any of that, frankly. The thing that I'm surprised about, and frankly, I mean, I again I think this is the the language of sacrifice, which I think is completely empty, or maybe just incorrectly authored. I don't hear I mean friends who are emergency room physicians who are seeing patients every day in Detroit, in Chicago, in Baltimore, I mean, they're not describing themselves. Talking about themselves through the language of sacrifice. I mean, these are frontline healthcare workers who have been put in harm way in harm's way, not by the virus, but by policy failures and by the scarcity of resources. And and suddenly, the the war metaphor, you know, is very easy with the sort of us and them dichotomy. But it also the part that I think is probably most corrosive is the sense of duty. This is an hour of need. We have a sense of duty. And everyone congratulating doctors and other healthcare workers for being cannon fodder. You know, it, it places, you know, it, it it misplaces all of the the concern about the crisis and the emergency on the virus and not on these failed systems that have failed these people who are, you know, are facing it every day in a, in a way that maybe you or I are not facing it. I mean, there's a real fetish for war, <laughs> um, you know, there's also this other part, which is this the idea of sacrifice i mean i would i mean getting back to sort of our 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 discussion of sort of the re reevaluation of terms i mean we should reevaluate the difference between sacrifice and inconvenience i mean i think that's something that has really struck oh. me during this the the lockdown and also you know there there's all of this discussion because of the way in which the outbreak has been characterized through war there is this suddenly there's this notion of civic responsibility But um, that civic responsibility, of course, I mean, most of the responsibility is shifted to the individual in a way that, you know, is, you know, it is, it's take care of yourself, you know, and so it's, it's not a a nation coming together. It is a connected group of individuals who each have to mind, who have to, you know, bear the burden of preventing the spread of this virus. And so it's, it is, it is a, for me, it's a useless metaphor. But probably the biggest crime is that it, a, I mean scapegoating. Yes, it misplaces, you know, it misplaces the, the, the locus of concern from the virus, and it ignores the failed systems that have been there for a long time. But suddenly, the concern is somehow amplified because of the, the virus. Horrible policy failures. But but I think the worst thing is is that it, it just um, it shifts the blame. And it's a very convenient way to shift blame and it doesn't make people rally together. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make people want to set off firework displays and see, you know, jet planes fly overhead. I mean, it really, it is a useless metaphor that's only being used by people who can, who who should be responsible rather than shifting blame. So that's my long winded way of saying these war metaphors are not, and they don't actually fit and you know, with the notion of catastrophe itself. I mean, this is a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe that's been on the horizon for a long time, and when we think about bodily c- t- catastrophe disintegration i mean this is a this is a moment of disintegration, you know and it's also i mean for the bodies who are affected by covid and then simultaneously, the institutions are disintegrating there' you know there's no integration of the system you know its parts are falling apart because of a because it can't sustain itself so in some ways the idea of catastrophe, I think fits, but the idea of war is obscuring.
0: I'd like to move into thinking about, about care. Care is an intimate thing, right? Emotionally, physically, and spiritually. So I was wondering what impact you think that the current crisis where prevention is prevention is based on maintaining physical distance, what impact do you think that will have in the care that that is enacted in the clinic or, or the hospital?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, this is, I mean, it's, it's one thing to think think about care in the the domestic sphere which is m- much more porous and relies on much more care outside of that domestic sphere in order for things to to function in order for you know life to 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 move forward and to you know to build in th- th- these these things outside of the the home are also places in which you know safety and security are actually are found but in the clinical environment I think this is I mean, you're asking. I think the the a question that I think clinicians ask often. Well, first of all, like what 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 does care mean in a clinical environment? I mean, the ability. I think the inability to provide. I mean, this is this is why. I mean, when we talk about the crisis, I mean, the crisis here was not just the the physical distancing in the hospital, the need for you know you know negative pressure environments or whatever whatever the, the need is in the in the clinical space, it was the fact that those resources, those resources themselves, the ventilators, the you know, the masks, the gloves, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, I mean, those were the things that allow clinicians to provide care. I mean, they're the, you know, they're technologies of care. And you know when there's scarcity in those tech- of those technologies, I think they become a question they become a problem of care not just a not just a instrumental problem, not just a problem of of the technology but what that technology is connected to so I think that helps us to understand what was so critical not just what were there enough ventilators but what does that actually mean in terms of the ability to provide care and how do we understand these environments is not just, not just as consumers of, of, of medical services, but what do we expect from these environments and and what do the clinicians and other healthcare workers and other people in those environments, not just the healthcare workers, but, you know, a hospital or a clinic is sustained by, you know, a, there's a lot of different activity that happens in those spaces to make them work um, how do those activities get impeded and how does that translate to our our understanding of what the provision of care means? I think that was the thing that, that was central to the crisis, not just the scarcity issue um, alone. I wonder, moving forward, how care will be reimagined. And I'm not talking about clinicians and I'm not talking about nurses. I'm not talking about you know, the people who in, a, in an emergency room are taking information when someone comes through the door. I'm talking about people who use those environments to seek help. I, I think we've already seen a, a very different way of understanding those spaces. I mean, one of the concerns, I mean, one of the first things that I thought of when I was debating whether or not to go back to Shanghai was what happens when someone gets sick that is not COVID related. If resources and People are stretched so thin. Not everybody is just one kind of sick, and we depend on these environments, and we depend on them to be there in a moment of crisis. And what happens when they're not? And what happens that if our concern isn't exactly what the moment of concern is about? I think that changes our relationship to these environments. And then there's also just the worry about entering them. I mean, this is not this is not a moment where people want to end up in an emergency room for a you know, non-COVID-related injury or, you know, health concern. And so I think the ways in which we think about use, about care, about abilities to occupy space, that those spaces have utility, I think all of this is getting rethought. And I don't think rethought in a way in which we're sitting down and drawing out a kind of, you know, schematic of how we relate to these environments. I think it comes through in in sort of basic choices and basic needs. So I think that changes the question of, I think that question of intimacy, you know, I'm reading a lot of this secondhand, but, you know, the inability for family members to, you know, to be there in, in the final moments of someone's life because they're not allowed in hospitals, there's a different form of intimacy Related to dying in the hospital, if there's no contact, and and I say this as some great insight, but it's not a great. I mean, people who have been working on hospice, and there are ten thousand, you know, anthropology gerontologists who have you know thought about end of life in various ways, and so I, I don't want to present this as though it's some great insight, but I do think that that there is this moment where, you know, there is there are new forms of intimacy that are growing around this outbreak. And maybe there were these moments before, but it's certainly come to come into my, you know, onto my radar in ways that I, I was, I think I was really surprised. And that's been one thing that I've been, you know, interested in for a long time as an anthropologist, you know, the, the kind of the porousness between the social world outside of the clinic and the inside of the clinic. And right now there, I mean, there's less porousness there in a sense. I mean, in just in terms of the ability of people to move. And there's certain, I mean there's certainly, part of that, that social is also kind of the, is beyond just the ability of a person to move within an environment. I mean, it's, it's greater than that, but is a real change in, in how open those environments are. And I think that changes our relationship to them. And I think it puts a different kind of pressure on the people who are inside those environments, taking care of people who are sick and dying. And so, you know, when we think about, you know, what was the language that we were just talking about with the, the war metaphor, you know, the, the heroism the sort of sacrifice the this idea of you know service that that healthcare healthcare workers as caregivers are are taking on i mean i think this is another element of that which is so profoundly intimate
0: yeah yeah the not only are the resources stretched even more but the types of care and the types of responsibility are being multiplied on top for the for these types of caregivers
1: yeah absolutely And I I don't, and and what, and I don't know what this will translate to in, in six months from now or a year from now. I think about writing that people like Arthur Kleiman have done on, on burnout. And, And a lot of people have written about burnout and, and there have been stories about, you know, clinicians, suicides and other, you know, other, other problems that arise from the burden of care. And yeah, I, I don't know what, I don't know what, what it's going to look like a year from now um, given new responsibilities and and being asked to carry so much. I mean, that's just it. I mean, you know, whether directly or indirectly, I mean, maybe, I mean, you know, every time we, we start talking about another topic and I, my mind loops back to what we talked about before. I mean, this is also the danger of that language of sacrifice and heroism related to the war metaphor, which is it puts it, it puts an incredible amount of pressure on those people who are are being framed as, as heroes, you know, who are there in our, you know, our hour of need and who feel a sense of duty and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a incredible amount of pressure to place on people who are already have enough pressure <laughs> placed on them. So mark that down as another worry, what this is going to look like in a year from now for those nurses, those physicians, those other, other healthcare workers, um, administrative staff. I mean, I think, I don't think that it's a I think it's an equal opportunity pressure
0: That's all the questions that I had written for you, but I was wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to talk to me about that I didn't think to ask you
1: well, I'll tell you I mean this has been this has been a really nice way to think out loud and maybe this circles back to what we kind of talked about in the very beginning, but I guess part of my attitude towards this and part of my my own personal comportment towards these concerns is that I don't think anybody has all the answers and there are people who I look to, you know, other scholars that I'm, you know, that I am reliant upon to get their insights. I mean, I talked about Carlo Kadoff before, but, you know, people like Frederick Keck and Christos Lenteris. And I mean, there's just so many anthropologists who have been thinking in these terms for a long time. But I, I also, I also think that there is something to be said for struggling with these concerns, to struggle with the moment we put a lot of value in, in clarity and in sophistication. And I, I, I would also like to add to the, to mix a little bit of confusion and, and worry, because when we look back, I think when we look back, you know, which we've already done, I mean, this is also the, the temporality of all of this gets you twisted up. But when we look back, you know, in six months, I mean, I think some of the, the worries and and, and concerns that we have that we can't put words to, I think, hopefully will become clearer in our minds as we absorb new worries and concerns. But I don't think that, you know, having a final word on this is the right way forward. And so, you know, I think we have to accept that we, that we, that it's beyond just performing the uncertainty that's required in our collective, you know, anthropological skepticism that we you know all like to participate at one point or another. Um, I think there is some, there's something about remaining, remaining worried, remaining skeptical, remaining uncertain that I think does help us piece through this. For me, that's almost like an analytical strategy. How are the ways in which I want to to wrestle with the things that I'm not so sure about? And I think that does something um, hopefully positive, I guess.
0: That's it for now. Thank you so much to Dr. Myers for sharing his time and knowledge. This episode was produced by me, Alejandro Melian. Music by Justin Cobert. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And come talk culture with us on Twitter at TalkCulturePod or Instagram at TalkCulturePodcast. Stay safe out there, everyone.